listen to the reading of the Word of God uh, from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 17. Paul is writing, and he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple." This is the word of the Lord. As uh, we continue in this uh, sermon series from the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm so enjoying it, called Unsaintly Saints, this morning what we discover in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is some role confusion, R-O-L-E. People who are confused about what their role is in the Corinthian church. And so what Paul is saying is the title of the sermon. He's saying this is who you are, this is who I am, And this is what we do. How many of you like to watch the not top 10 on SportsCenter? Anybody like to watch that? It's terrible. You know why we like to watch it, don't you? Because we love seeing people mess up. And there's something in us. We love seeing people mess up. And and so on the not top 10, they'll put these you know, plays where people have just gotten confused, done the wrong thing, or been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But one of my all-time favorites uh, was in a Florida football game this year. So check out the screen and watch what happened in this football game. And there they are. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering, that's not their first football game. 
One of them was a senior, one was a junior, all right? So they roll out on this play. They're blocking each other. They are confused about their role. And I don't know why it took so long or why they didn't realize they were both wearing the same jerseys. And Florida is running a play. Role confusion can be just as hilarious in the church. And maybe what was worse about this game, they were playing Georgia Southern, and they lost. So uh, it it was a a bad day for uh, Florida. I want to give you three realities of who you are, who I am, and what we do together. Number one, the number one reality is that you are God's temple, not mere humans. All right, so you are God's temple, not mere humans. Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. What does it mean to be a person of the flesh? A person of the flesh or people who are controlled by the flesh means that when something happens, your first reaction is a fleshly one. You respond in a fleshly way. For example, if you are on Highway 70 and you're in a hurry, what is going to be your normal fleshly response to Highway 70 traffic? Road rage, yeah. Road rage because there is always somebody who's going 35. Always, is there not? On Highway 70, if you're in a hurry, there's always somebody who's just sightseeing. They have no place to be. They don't care. They have no clue that you're in a hurry. And you're convinced by now if they cared, they'd slow down even more. I mean, that's what happens in your mind. And that's a fleshly response. And what Paul is saying is, I can address you the way I need to address you because you're acting like fleshly, not spiritual people. As a matter of fact, Paul isn't flattering at all in this text. This is straightforward. He said, I fed you you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Uh, uh, He says in verse 1, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. What is he saying? Is Paul saying that in order to know Christ, you've got to be all grown up? No, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is that when you come to faith in Christ, later he will make the point that the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes to live within you, immediately makes you a son or daughter of God. And he is saying you as an adult, as a child of God, you as an adult, you're acting like a baby. Uh, You've said this to your kids before. Act your age. You've said that, haven't you? And that's what Paul is saying. Act your age. Act who you are. You're not acting like you ought to act. You're acting like you don't even know the basics. That's what he is saying. Now, there's an interesting thought here. Because some people have taken this passage, and here's what they do with it. They say, well, there's a group in the church, and these are the babies. And the babies, they can't handle that good, solid teaching, all right? They, they can only handle, all, you know, the stuff that's kind of on the surface. Then there's a group in the church, and these are the austere theological types, and they can handle the lofty teaching. That isn't what Paul is saying. How do we know that? Because God, uh, through Christ, said this, unless you come to Christ as what? A little child. You won't get it. Every one of us who gets it 
gets it when we have the faith of a what? A kid. Every one of us does. If we get it, it's because we have the faith of a little child. And what he is saying here, unless you come, what Jesus says, unless you come like a child, you won't get it. Paul's not saying lose your childlike faith. He is saying lose your childlike behavior. He is saying don't don't lose your childlike trust, but lose your childlike tantrums. That's what he's saying. Unless you have the faith of a child, that's still the case. But you must have the trust of a child and the temperament of a grown-up. And the Corinthians have lost that. So, Jerry, how do you know? Look at what it says. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What was the jealousy and strife that existed among the Corinthians? Some said, oh, I follow Paul. I came to Christ under Paul. Others said, uh-uh-uh, I came to Christ under Apollos. You see, Paul planted the church at Corinth. Apollos came in after Paul, and he preached at the church of Corinth. And so some really liked Paul because they came to Christ under Paul's ministry. And other real, others really liked Apollos because they came to Christ under Apollos' ministry. And so you've got your Paul camp, and you've got your Apollos camp. And and and. and And they developed factions over it. And there was jealousy and strife that developed between them. What is Paul saying? That this disunity that characterizes the Corinthian church is childlike behavior. It is adults acting like kids. Isn't it? So, Jerry, does this really happen? Just go to any, most any little league ball game. All right? There's going to be that parent somewhere in the crowd. When they're six-year-old, I mean, this is life and death. He is six. Gets up to the base, and he strikes out who's going to rant and rave and rail on that referee, on that umpire. After all, this is life and death. This is a six-year-old. This is going to, you know, change his life. Yes, adults can act like children. Can it happen in the church? Absolutely. It was happening here at Corinth. Here at Grace, we have a covenant. And our church covenant is what each of our members sign. And it uh, says four simple things. It's nothing extravagant. Four I will statements. Number one, I will protect the unity of my church. Number two, I will share the responsibility of my church. Number three, I will serve the ministry of my church. Number four, I will support the testimony of my church. Four simple I will statements. Paul is addressing the first here. I will protect the unity of my church. How? We say here, by living in obedience to the scriptures and seeking a Christ-like life, by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leadership of the church. It doesn't mean not disagreeing with the leadership. And it doesn't mean you're going to be in love with everybody in the church. It just simply means that when you join this local church or any local church, 
that you join, you make a decision, you make an agreement that you will preserve the unity of that church. Why? John 17, Jesus is about to die. He is going to his beating and then his crucifixion and he prays. And in his prayer, he prays this. Father, I pray that they may be one. Even as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in you, they may be in me and I in them and that they may be one. And what is the result of that unity? That the world may know. The number one attraction to unchurched people for a local church is unity. Jesus prayed for it. Why is that the case? Because your workplace is sometimes characterized by gossip. Because your, um, your families are sometimes characterized by division. Because if you watch CNN and Fox, you'll just hear people duke it out with each other. And so if people can come to church and they discover a people who rally around one person, one message, it is incredibly powerful. Paul says, verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Do you know what Paul says? No longer can you use the excuse, well, I'm just human. I'm ruling that out, Paul says. So what are you? Verse 16, jump to verse 16. He says, do you not know? Meaning, have you forgotten something? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? When you come to God by faith in Christ, as Jared has, and he describes it in his testimony so wonderfully done, at the moment that Jared came to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within him. I happened to be uh, next door in the YC building one day. I walked in. This was after Jared came to faith in Christ. I walk into the men's bathroom. Jared walks into the men's bathroom after me or before me, and he looks at me and he says, Did you hear? Well, I did, but I, I didn't want to let him know. I said, What? He said, did you hear what happened? And his face was like that. And I said, what is it, Jared? He said, I met Jesus. Just like that. I said, you did? And he said with his eyes glowing, yes, and he is so wonderful. Isn't that cool? This exuberance, this joy. What would cause that in Jared? None other than the Holy Spirit himself. Do you know why that is a believer who sins is the most miserable person on the face of the earth? An unbeliever who sins does not have the Holy Spirit within him saying no to this or yes to what he should do or no to what he shouldn't do. But when you come to God by faith in Christ and you blow it and you fail and you sin, there will be this misery within you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in you is saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, this is wrong. Don't go there. Don't do that. And the Spirit convicts you of the very sin you have committed because he is indeed living in you. That's what Paul is saying. You are a temple. I went this week and just Googled and found Architectural Digest, some of the 10 most amazing buildings in the world. Dave added a few to it. I want you to check out some of these buildings here. These are buildings that humans have designed and humans have built. Isn't that pretty incredible? The slanted buildings. Uh, That was in Germany. This is right here in Dubai. 
fantastic uh, tall building. Singapore. Wow, that's phenomenal. And now we'll zoom in. This is part of that building we just looked at from a distance. Now we look up close, keep trucking. Not sure where this is. I think either in, in China or another Asian country. This is in Dallas, Texas, a museum. Keep trucking. Have no clue where that is. Let's keep rolling. Amazing. Look at that. Pretty remarkable. Now look at it from a distance. Isn't that a remarkable design? This right here, just to be able to get that to stand and design it in such a way so that it's structured. And then these last four buildings, believe it or not, these are churches. All right, so here's a church. Not sure where it is. I think this is a Nebo. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Here's a church, downtown Old Fort. And look at that. Look at that cathedral window. All four of those are churches. We look at that and we stand in awe of an architect, right, who could design such a building and builders who could build such a building. And when Paul said to the Corinthians, you are the temple, what was in their frame of reference? Stone Mountain right behind them. On that stone mountain stood the temple to Aphrodite. It was massive. And they would say, I can't be near that elaborate. Or if they were a Jew, they would think of Solomon's temple, would they not? In its glory and grandeur and think, uh-uh. But you are. You are more glorious, more extravagant. You are grander than any of those. If you're a teenager in the room, I want you to listen to me right now. Any teenagers in the room, listen. This goes to your significance as a follower of Christ. God doesn't send his Holy Spirit to live in just any old person. He sends his spirit to live in his kids, his sons and daughters. And teenagers, he'll begin, college students, he'll begin to weave a design for your life that one day you'll step back and you'll see how A led to B and B led to C and C led to D. And, and it'll blow your mind if you'll listen, if you'll follow God, it'll blow your mind how he connects the dots and how he brings things together and how he works it out for your good and for his glory, this grand design that God wants to unfold for your life. You are God's temple, not mere humans. Number two, speaking about us, second reality, we are mere servants, not superstars. We as pastors, as leaders of the church, what does Paul say about him and Apollos? He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. We're servants. We're not superstars. I know we live in a culture where you can podcast guys and, and we have made superstars out of pastors today and they're on television and people just flock to hear them and there's nothing wrong with listening to godly pastors and you ought to podcast. I do that. I listen to other preachers as I mow and as I drive down the road and different things that I do. You should do that. But never ever idolize them. They're, they're servants like you. 
We are mere servants, not superstars. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I didn't even pick this job. I didn't. Most of you probably picked your career. I didn't pick this. I chose something else. I was studying for something else. I was in grad school for something completely different when God began through his spirit to to just convict me and say, Jerry, I've called you to pastor. And I said, no, I've called you. And he said, and I said, no. And for month after month after month, I refused his call until I couldn't say no anymore. Why? He picked me. He assigned me to this task. He chose me to be a servant. He chose me to be his. And he says, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. There are so many different ways we could go about this. There are so many different ways we could. Paul could have pictured it, but he pictured them as filled hands. What kind of filled hands? One's a plow boy and another's a water boy. Those in Corinth... In the city of Corinth, that was not something to write home about. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a, I'm a, a plow boy, and who are you? I'm a water boy. That's nothing to write home about. It means, he says, one plowed and another watered. Some commentators have written about this. I want you to think about it. He says, by by using this, Paul says that the labor of one without the other would be useless. What does that mean? If somebody plants and nobody waters, guess what? Nothing's going to grow. Nothing, Nothing absolutely is going to grow. So one plants, another waters, and the labor of one without the other is useless. Number two, uh, though both are essential, the laborers are interchangeable. What does that mean? Anybody can plant and anybody can water that God has assigned the task. If God picks them, anybody can do it. Do you know what that means, church? I'm not indispensable. There are other men who can pass through this church. There are other men who can lead our children's ministry. There are other men who can lead our youth ministry. There are other men who can lead our our discipleship and pastoral care. There are other men who can lead worship. God has called people. And so I can plant, somebody else can water. Somebody else can plant, I can water. I am not indispensable. The humility that that requires of me is absolutely critical. Number three, a rivalry between a planter and a waterer in a working field is absurd. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine if somebody was planting, somebody was watering, and the person who's planting doesn't like the person who's watering? And so they're like, I'm not going to let you water this. Well, that's dumb. Why? Because it won't grow. Or the person who's watering is saying, hey, I'm just going to water over here where you didn't plant anything. Well, unless you're into making mud pies, that's pretty stupid. It's absurd to think of, of staff not getting along and of staff not working together. One of the policies I've had ever since we went from when it was just me and a desk and, and a member of our church's uh, spare room, and that's what it used to be. I was the only person on staff back in the day, and I had a desk and a cell phone, and that was it. To when we started to have multiple staff, I would say to every single one of them, it continues to be my policy, my approach today. Listen, I will be in your face or I'll have your back. You'll never wonder what I think. 
You'll never, ever wonder. You'll, I won't play games with you. You won't wonder where I'm coming from. I will constantly communicate to you the exact opinion of what I have about what you're doing, good or bad. It's absurd to think that we would be on a staff together, not love each other and work with each other and minister to and alongside one another and hold each other accountable. It's just absurd to think about that. A rivalry between a planter and a water and a working field is absurd. This reminded me, I grew up, uh, there were three of us right together. My sister is 18 months younger than I, than me, and then my brother 18 months older. And then we have another brother who came 10 years down the road. So there was the three of us. And we grew up in little country churches. And if you grew up in little country churches back in the day, nobody planned anything, all right? How did that work? You just show up and somebody say, brother so-and-so, you want to sing? Or sister so-and-so, and then they just get up and sing. The choir never practiced, ever, I promise. People who wanted to sing in the choir just kind of go up to the choir, and then the choir director would say, well, turn to this, and we all just sing it. That's just kind of how I grew up. And so there's the three of us, and, and, and we're like kindergarten, first, second grade, or first, second, and third grade. I th- we were somewhere in that age, and we were going to sing this song, which I did not understand. It was called, The Lifeboat Soon is Coming to Gather His Children Home. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know who was driving the boat. I, I didn't know anything. I'm serious. But that's the song we were singing. So we're down there singing. When my, in my OCD perfectionist self, my brother said light pole instead of lifeboat. And we're in front of the whole church. And in front of the whole church worshiping the Lord, I just give him the whole heave-ho elbow like, it's lifeboat. Like that. And he elbows me back and we're about to duke it out right there. Isn't that hilarious? I mean, it's just this crazy. We're just trying to sing this song. We don't know what it means. We're just trying to worship God and, and sing song. We have no music. It's just the three of us. And I'm elbowing him, and he's elbowing me back, and we're just mad in front of everybody. As ridiculous as that sounds, it is super more ridiculous to consider a church coming together and a staff seeking to do God's work and not doing that together, is it not? But it happens all over the place. Even as these groups have been coming in from Ridgecrest to work now, we've had two rotations of groups. And in both rotations of groups, I've had some staff minister pull me aside and say, Jerry, I just need to have a conversation with you. Yes, what's going on? I don't, I don't know these people. First time I've met them, it's me and my pastor. These are all staff guys. And this is what's going on. And my heart breaks for that. Why? That just should never be. So now, two, two separate ones. It's just absurd. Uh, the fourth reality is that God is the life force who produces the harvest. What does that mean? We're mere servants, not superstars. Please hear me. I love you. And if I could do anything in the world, anything, to convince you to trust Jesus Christ, I love him so much. I don't know of any person I would not engage in a conversation to try to convince them to give their life to Christ. But you know what? If I can convince you with my persuasiveness to trust Christ, somebody else can unconvince you with their persuasiveness. Only the Holy Spirit can draw you to himself. Only the Holy Spirit can take you out of darkness into light. The same message that motivates some angers others. The same message that moves some people 
Others hear it and they just simply sit back and it has no effect. I cannot do that. Paul, Paul said, I'm a water boy. Apollos, uh, I, I'm a plow boy. Apollos is a water boy. But it's God who makes it grow. Period. All the good that happens, God does. We are mere servants, not superstars. Last week as I was preaching, I looked in the middle section right here, and there sat a lady, and I remembered her from a couple of years ago. She has family in the church, and uh, she happened to be here the Sunday that we announced that we were starting a foster adoption ministry. And later that week, I received an email, and then a check. Uh, the church received a check from her, uh, a, a really nice donation toward this ministry. And she said, this is to help families who know that God has called them to adopt, and maybe they need some financial assistance with that. She's not a member here. She simply, uh, her mother is, and she was just here with her mom again last week from Tennessee. Now, as I looked at her, I looked over and saw Scott and Angela and remembered uh, how God had used them to adopt there too. And we got another family in our church right now that's going through an adoption uh, process and her funds are helping do that. And so I walked out and she was standing there at the corner near the sound booth and I walked up to her and I said, do you remember a couple years ago when you visited, uh, we announced this ministry and You guys gave uh, the first gift. She said, I don't know if we gave the first gift, but I remember giving. At that time, Scott and Angela walked right by us with those two little kids they adopted from China. I said, see those kids right there? You helped do that. She began to cry. I looked over and saw the other couple that were standing. They were standing up here. I said, see them? I reached out to an attorney who cut his fee in half for them, and they are adopting, and they're saving their money, and your money is helping get them the rest of the way. And all of us together, and she turned to me with total humility, humility and said, thank you so much for sharing this. She wanted no limelight. These folks sitting in here today, Scott sitting in here, the other family sitting in here, have no clue who she is. Paul said, I plant Apollos waters, but who makes it grow? Church? Say that again. Who makes it grow? He does. You know what that should do? Takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Like when you go share the gospel, God's going to cause that to grow. If anything's going to come of it, God's going to make it happen. The, the, The onus isn't on you for that. Here's the third reality. It's kind of fascinating. You are the builders and the building. Check it out, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So Paul planted the church. He started the church at Corinth. He laid the foundation. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? The foundation of the church is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Here it is. You are so flawed that Jesus had to die for you, and you are so loved that he was glad to die for you. That's the foundation. 
Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. He says nobody can lay another foundation. That's it. Every church has to be built upon the gospel. And it never gets old. That story never, ever gets old. Verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If you take God and his word seriously, these next few verses ought to get your attention. Why? Because they involve God and fire. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying there's a judgment day coming. And on that judgment day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everything we have done in this life will be judged based on its value in the work of the kingdom. And there are two values here. There's gold, silver, and precious stones. There's wood, hay, and straw. And you choose whatever materials you choose to build with. Now, if you choose gold, silver, and precious stones, guess what? That's going to cost you something, isn't it? You can't use gold, silver, and precious stones and it not cost you. You will pay a price. You will sacrifice. There will be a certain price that you pay to serve. You can't coast and use gold, silver, and precious stones. You're going to have to spend some money to get some gold, silver, and precious stones. That's why engagement rings are so cool. Why are they cool? Because the guy can say he loves a girl all day long, but let him walk into a jewelry store and throw down a few G's for a ring, and guess what? He loves her. He loves her. He's choosing her over his Jeep. He's choosing her over his lifestyle. He's choosing her over whatever it could be because all of a sudden he's buying her a diamond. Gold, silver, and, and, and special uh, uh, stones, those things are valuable. Number two, a building in Corinth was known for its value if it could withstand a fire. Keep in mind, there are no engines and fire trucks. If something catches on fire, it's going to be work to get the fire out. And so a building is built to be able to withstand fire. What happens when you set fire to gold, silver, or precious stones? It only burns impurities away. It gets better. Once tested, it's even better. So here's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. This is what Paul is saying. On Judgment Day, you'll stand before God. Those of you who know Christ will stand before him. And at this judgment, God's going to judge what we've done since coming to Christ. And... Some of it is gold, silver, precious stones. Say, Jerry, what do you mean? Not only what you do, but the attitude with which you do it. Right? I mean, there there are some of you who serve, but you're like, well, I'm going to do this. Nobody else will. Well, whoo, we're glad to have you on the team. I mean, you're going to be a great face for whatever ministry you're about to do. Well, I'm going to show up. Nobody else. You know, they keep asking. If they keep asking, I'll do it. Well, you know, you are going to be a pleasure with the kids in preschool. God pity those kids if that's how you walk in there. 
No, that's not gold, silver, and precious stones. Gold, silver, and precious stones is, wow, God has saved me. God has redeemed me. He's done for me what nobody else could do for me. How could I not serve him? How could I not go the distance? That's gold, silver, and precious stones. But what if you show up with that attitude? What if you uh, say, well, you know, it's time for the offering, and yeah, I know I should, I know I should give, but, you know, honey, let's throw, let's throw a dollar in the plate. At least it won't pass. That basket, you know, won't pass, and we'll look so bad. One of our guys taking the offering said last week or week before, uh, the kids were in here, and uh, they were, or a few weeks ago, the kids were in here, and they were taking the offering, and this kid decided he was going to give, but the, the, the bill he had was too much, so he was making change in the offering basket. That is hilarious. The basket just stalled right in front of him. He dropped in his five and was taking out some ones. He wasn't going to give God five bucks, you know? I love it. Absolutely love it. So the question is, is what you're doing, is it wood, hay, straw? If so, it'll be burned up. Well, will it affect your entry into heaven? Not for a split second. Paul makes that clear. You will escape, but only as through fire. What does that mean? It means you will escape, but only because Christ, who is the ultimate fireman, has gone into the burning house of your sin through the cross, rescued you out, and pulled you out. And as one preacher says, you'll get into heaven, but with the smell of smoke on you because all your works have burned up. Could I ask you a question this morning? And it's a very serious question. Are are you doing anything worthwhile for the kingdom of God? Anything. Say, wow, Jerry, this is is a hard-hitting sermon. I I haven't even got to the worst part yet, and I'm getting there in about 30 seconds. Do you show up every Sunday and just kind of take everything in but contribute nothing? Are you blessed with, with gifts and talents and money and time, and you just withhold it? Do you just say, oh, they'll get that, and they'll take care of that, and nah, surely somebody will do that. So how important are the materials with which you build? While doing relief work in Haiti, this is what one engineer had to say. There was a problem in Haiti. Houses were built with too much sand and not enough steel. Sand is cheap, so because of poverty, when many Haitians built their cement block homes, they used more sand than they should have in their mortar mix. And because steel is expensive, they didn't use enough steel in the columns and ring beams, so when the ground quaked, homes crumbled. Too much sand, not enough steel. How seriously does God take this? This is going to surprise you. It's going to surprise you. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, that's you and me, the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you're that temple. Wow. I don't want to be on that list. Do you know what Paul is suggesting? That the destruction of God's church could be an inside job? 
that from within people could be so destructive as to tear their brother or sister down who sits down the row from them or who attends the other service, who does whatever. They could be so destructive so as to destroy the very church of God itself. And when they do that, God will destroy them. And you say, oh, Jerry, that's hyperbole. God's not going to do that. God would never do that. I'm going to prove to you. I'll prove to you that he will by your own very life. All of you, especially who are husbands in the room. Here's the deal. Everybody who knows me knows I am anything but a fighter. All right? I'm anything but a fighter. I I don't like to watch fighting on television. Uh, You know, some of you get together and watch those fights, and it just kind of grosses me out, honestly. There's nothing in that that has ever in my life appealed to me. When I was in school and people broke redneck and got in fights, I went the other direction. Honestly. I'm not lying to you. I'm anything but a fighter. But do you know when I would just absolutely break redneck? If somebody came after my wife. Why? Uh, Wendy is the very best thing other than Jesus Christ that has ever happened to me. Uh, next week, she will have put up with me, or week after next, for, for 14 years. She deserves a lot for that. Somebody amen that in the early service. They've changed churches. But, uh, but she deserves a lot for that. And if somebody comes, out, comes after her, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to break redneck. I'll probably be stupid. It's just do something ridiculous. And knowing my inability to fight, just get my butt kicked. But I'd still go after him. As much as I love her and as wonderful as she has been in my life and, and, and a treasure and a blessing that she is, God loves you more. And let somebody come after you. And the word is, he will destroy that person. You're not a mere human. You're his temple. His bride. And he'll go to the mat for you. Say, Jerry, how do you know? 2,000 years ago, baby boy, his only begotten son, born of Mary, died on a cross, hung in shame, cried out to his daddy, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me three days later resurrected 50 days later ascended right after that Holy Spirit descends into the upper room starts the church of Jesus Christ and he is crazy about you you're not mere human You're his beloved, his bride. And he's fought for you once with his boy's life, and he'll fight for you again. Father, take this truth, drive it home. In your name we pray, amen.
God bless you. Take this, let this sink in. Let this get from the head down to the heart. I'm li- I-, I think you need to leave abruptly and think through this. Have a great rest of your Sunday.